0: While all the signs point to the soon return of Jesus, many churches are blindly engulfed in self-improvement messages, concerns about the environment, or woke issues. People are simply not being prepared by pastors to meet God when Jesus suddenly returns just as He promised. I don't have any doubts that all the prophecies concerning the Lord's second coming will be fulfilled right on schedule. Since the Bible has been so accurate in fulfilling prophecies concerning the Lord's first coming, I'm sure the Bible's track record will be perfect and right on time concerning the fulfillment of prophecies of the second coming.
1: The Jerusalem Channel is made with the support of you, our viewers. Thank you for watching.
0: I'm Christine Dark. The Bible informs us of two comings of the Lord. First, he came riding into Jerusalem on a humble colt of a donkey as the servant king. This was foretold precisely in the Hebrew Bible in Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout, daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just having salvation lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. But by contrast, the Lord's second coming will not be a humble affair. It will be in great splendor and triumph. Revelation 19:11 envisions Jesus riding on a white war horse. Listen, John said, Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. How wonderful is this prophetic truth? But we live in a confused world that rejects absolute truth. A moral code, fixed standards like the Ten Commandments, are very offensive to the dominant worldview of lawlessness that is presently running contrary to the truth. People are so easily offended if you tell them that they are ensnared in wrongful behavior. They protest, judge not. But if somebody's house is on fire and they're told to get out, is that being judgmental? Or is it simply warning them? Well, we have a very troublesome situation in the churches today. The Bible says in no uncertain terms that God will destroy the world because of its rebellion and unrighteousness. But the church is clinging to this world. In the midst of today's moral confusion, the church needs to be teaching that God's moral laws are fixed as the laws of physics. And God's moral law teaches that sin results in death. Evidence to this truth is the fact that everybody dies. Only one generation of believers will never die, and that's the last generation of believers who are alive when the Lord returns. But meanwhile, Romans 6.23 declares that the wages of sin is what? Death. And throughout the history of mankind, there have been only two exceptions. Both Enoch and Elijah were snatched to heaven without dying. The book of Hebrews states that it's appointed unto men once to die. After this comes the judgment. Well, I'm here to assure you that the Bible proves its own validity because of its unique prophecies. The Bible is the only book that contains hundreds of fulfilled prophecies, predictions about the future that actually came true. No other religious book can make this claim. And God is able to declare the end from the beginning because He exists outside of time as we know it. The Hebrew Bible taught that the Messiah would come in the fullness of God's time, that He would be virgin-born without a human father, yet He would also be a biological descendant of King David. The prophet Malachi prophesied that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem Through God-ordained circumstances, Jesus' human parents, Mary and Joseph, were in fact compelled to travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem just prior to the Lord's birth to participate in a Roman census. And that journey caused the Holy Family to arrive in Bethlehem right on time for the Messiah to be born there because he was descended from David. And this was according to... Micah 5, 2, but you, Bethlehem Ephrata, though you were little amongst the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. Also, as prophesied, the Messiah would be anointed by the Holy Spirit to perform messianic miracles, healing lepers, the blind and the lame. And, of course, all this Jesus did. According to the Hebrew Bible, the Messiah would have to enter Jerusalem humble on that cult of a donkey. In fact, in Daniel 9, verses 25 to 26, the prophet Daniel proclaimed that Israel's long-awaited Messiah would begin his public ministry 483 years after the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Jerusalem. He further predicted that the Messiah would be cut off, executed, and that this event would take place prior to a second destruction of Jerusalem. Abundant documentation shows that these prophecies were perfectly fulfilled in the life and crucifixion of Jesus. So the Messiah would have to fulfill all of the Isaiah 53 prophecies about being rejected, despised, scourged, as well as the Psalm 22 prophecies that his clothing would be distributed by lots and his death by crucifixion to make atonement for the world. And as prophesied, the Messiah was numbered among criminals but buried in a rich man's grave and that he would rise from the dead and become a light to the Gentiles. All of these circumstances, plus many more unique to Messiah, were prophesied in the Hebrew Bible and Jesus fulfilled them. And he will also fulfill all the remaining prophecies about King Messiah at his second coming. I believe the narrative. In fact, the Bible is so accurate that I have full confidence that all the prophecies about the Lord's second coming will come to pass. After his resurrection, the Lord Jesus himself in Luke chapter 24 upbraided his disciples who didn't understand why the servant king first had to come and die. He said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And then Beginning with the books of Moses and with all the prophets, Jesus explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. He opened their minds to understand the Hebrew Bible and to understand that the Bible prophecies were about him, that circumstances were foreordained by God, that he would suffer and rise again, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Well, according to the Hebrew for Christians website, Orthodox Jewish tradition teaches that the period of time immediately prior to Messiah's arrival is called the time when the footsteps of Messiah can be heard. And some of the signs that are literally shouting this period include the rise of various false prophets, numerous wars and rumors of wars, pestilences, famines, earthquakes, worldwide apostasy from the faith, persecution, and a globalized godlessness manifested in unbridled selfishness and shame. But the greatest sign, as I often point out, is that the people of Israel exist once again as a sovereign state despite their long exile. Amongst the nations. Just before the time of his return, Jesus, Yeshua, forewarned that moral sickness would be pervasive. He said in Matthew 24 12, because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, literally will be extinguished. Therefore, in light of the spiritual war that rages all around us, it's vital that we remain firmly rooted in reality by taking hold of our identity and provision as children of God. We're not to be troubled like the world that lives in fear and uncertainties, nor are we to crave security from this world's systems. No, we're to look to God Almighty. He alone is our refuge and defense. He's the one who sustains us in all of our storms. If we truly accept the fact that God is in complete control of our lives, then will be set free from the terrible burdens of fear and anxiety and disappointments. Meanwhile, the churches are trying to court the favor of the world to fill their four walls. Many churches today claiming to be Christian actually teach doctrines of demons from the pulpits and convince congregations that twisted doctrines are somehow supported by the Holy Scriptures. In the last days, the church will be changed to such an extent that demons will find themselves comfortable enough to make their home within the various branches of the institutional church. Sadly, tragically, many churchgoers fail to discover for themselves what the scriptures actually teach. Keep in mind that Yeshua himself said in Matthew 24, 24, that if it were possible even the very elect would be deceived. And furthermore, James 4.4 reminds us that friendship with the world means infidelity to God. The church is trying so hard to appease climate control and the LGBT agendas, focusing on these issues rather than teaching the gospel, Bible prophecy, and preparing people for the tumults to come. In Thessalonians 5.21, the Apostle Paul exhorted, Examine all things by this Word of God. So that includes testing the content of ministries, the teaching, preaching, doctrines, sermons, writings, opinions, song lyrics, and practices. Everything must be tested in light of the Lord's standards in this Bible. Reject any teaching or worship song that's not supported by the scriptures. For example, a woke church says that you are welcome here and you don't have to clean up your life. You can continue in your sinful habits. You can be part of the worship team. We don't care. We won't dare to judge you. A legalistic church, on the other hand, says you're not welcome here until you change your ways and clean up your life. But Jesus himself has the correct biblical attitude. He says, you're welcome in my church, but you must submit to my lordship and allow me to clean up your life and change you from the inside out. As he explained in John 8:11, to a woman caught in the act of adultery, neither do I condemn you, but he added, go and sin no more. Now then, there are many beautiful pictures in the book of Revelation of the New Jerusalem. But before we arrive there, first, the cataclysmic scenarios of judgment happen in Revelation chapters 6 to 19, and they're quite devastating. These visions of great tribulation should cause all of us to tremble, especially when we consider unsaved loved ones who are blindly headed into the future without thinking of their souls, nor the location of their eternal destination. In Isaiah 66, 2, God declares, I will look favorably on this kind of a person, one who is humble, of a contrite spirit, and trembles at my word. And yet all around us people are careless. They're sleepwalking into a Christless eternity. To be blunt, they're headed to hell. While well-meaning folks conclude at the funerals of these lost souls that they have just transitioned to a better place. In fact, a better place is a great platitude and deception of our times. Music like Always Look on the Bright Side of Life or I Did It My Way. These songs are played at unbelievers' funerals with no thought given to heaven or hell. As I've tried to say faithfully in these broadcasts, the diligent study of Bible prophecy will direct us to the truth. And the truth is, people desperately need the Lord. We dare not die without Him. We all need the spotless garment of righteousness that the Savior, the Lamb of God, imputes to believers as a free gift. He imputes to believers His own righteousness, which is acceptable to God. It's a deception to believe that God will accept our own good deeds, which in his eyes, the Bible says, amount to filthy rags. That's why we need the Savior. Well, many eschatologists believe that the great apostasy, the great falling away, will soon be complete. This apostasy is not from outside the church, but rather it's from the inside, resulting from the corruption of institutional Christianity, or should I say, churchianity. When congregations no longer study God's word, people readily accept half-truths and false teaching. Hosea 4, 6 tells us, my people perish for lack of knowledge. And tragically, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus predicted a judgment day when many who claim to be Christians and call Jesus Lord will not be permitted into heaven. In fact, Jesus predicted that some will even claim to have prophesied in his name, to cast out devils and done many wonderful works in his name. Yet, they will be excluded from heaven because they didn't have a personal relationship with Jesus. They weren't being spirit led and they didn't obey the Lord's commandments. In other words, they just didn't abide in his word. You see, claiming to be a believer won't get us into heaven if we refuse to obey the Lord's precepts. In James 2.19, after all, the apostle James wrote that even the demons believe, but they tremble. Today, many Bible scholars and eschatologists believe that we're living in the last church age. Of the seven church ages over the past nearly 2,000 years, covered in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, Bible scholars have concluded that we're in the last one, the apostate one. It's known as the last of the seven churches mentioned in the book of Revelation, namely the church of Laodicea, and the Lord had nothing positive to say about it. While he did have some commendations for the earlier churches, Bible scholars say ours is now the age typified by the church of Laodicea, whom the Lord said he would spew out of his mouth because it was lukewarm, neither hot nor cold. I've never liked lukewarm coffee or tea. For me, it's got to be boiling. If you pour tepid water into a teapot of boiling water, immediately, of course, the temperature sinks. And lukewarm professing believers dilute the fervency of believers and pull them down to the same tepid temperature. Lukewarmness is a direct insult to the Lord. If we say to him, I believe you, but my heart's not really in it. Does the Lord who died to save us deserve such treatment? Lukewarm believers compromise God before the eyes of the world with a cold, indifferent spirit. The ancient city of Laodicea stood on one of the great Roman roads with a large stream of traffic continually flowing through it. And so its inhabitants became very wealthy. The Laodicean church was one of the early centers of Christianity in Asia, which is modern Turkey today. And Laodicea was closely connected with the church in Colossae. They were only about 10 miles apart. In fact, Laodicea is mentioned four times in Paul's epistle to the Colossians. In that letter, Paul sent greetings to the house church in Laodicea. And in Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 and 5, as well as Colossians 4, the Laodiceans were greeted as having a good reputation, being steadfast. Bible scholars also say that Paul's epistle was also intended to be read by the congregation at Laodicea. But in John's vision, recorded later in the book of Revelation, the Lord's message to Laodicea was a rebuke and a stern call to repentance. How shocking that the congregation, once commended by Paul as being steadfast in the faith, had backslidden and now was in great danger of being disciplined by Jesus. He said, I will spew you out of my mouth. He would vomit them. A tragic change had come over Laodicea. Now in the book of Revelation, they were charged with being lukewarm. Gone was their fervent zeal. Gone was a vigorous faith. Gone was the sacred heat. Their lukewarm condition is all too common amongst many who profess to believe today. That's why the church is often referred to today as the Church of Laodicea. We should be known by our fervency, just as tongues of fire rested upon the heads of believers in the upper room on the great day of Pentecost. Well, the Laodiceans congratulated themselves for being moderate and for thinking that they had no need for anything, but their condition nauseated the Lord. Furthermore, in the book of Revelation, the Lord is pictured as standing outside the Laodicean church, knocking on the door for admission. What an irony. The Lord should always be welcome in the midst of the church, not standing outside, heaven forbid, like a stranger. So he revealed to Laodicea their true condition, says the amen, the faithful and true. I know your deeds. I know that you're neither hot nor cold. How I wish that you were either, but because you are lukewarm, I'm about to vomit you out of my mouth. You say I'm rich. I've grown wealthy and I have need of nothing. Doesn't that sound like a lot in the church today? But he said, you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. That certainly describes so much of the Western church. But then the Lord went on to say, those I love, I rebuke and discipline. Therefore, be earnest and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and dine with him and he was me to the one who overcomes. I will grant the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I have overcome and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Amen. Oh, what a revelation this is. The Laodiceans assumed they had the Lord's approval, but he shocked them and counseled them to apply Myself, that illuminating grace of the Holy Spirit. However, despite the apostate nature of that church, Jesus offered them that word of hope in Revelation 3, 19 and 20. He said, as many as I love, I rebuke and I chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent because I'm knocking at the door and I will come in and sup with you and dine with you if you open that door. See how true it is that the Lord doesn't desire the death of sinners, but rather he desires that sinners should turn from their wickedness and live. To the repentant who opens the door, the Lord Jesus promises he'll come in and dine with them. Did you know that to this day, dining is still very important in Middle Eastern culture? To share a meal with someone in the East is considered a very significant act of friendship and intimacy. The best remedy for backsliding is this communion with the Lord. So let's surely fling open the door and invite him in while there's still time. So my friend, I want to remind you that the Bible says we should tremble at God's word, because Matthew 7:14 is a very scary verse. It declares, "Narrow is the gate in the way leading unto life." and few there be that find it. So the gate of salvation is very narrow, whereas the road to hell is wide and broad. In Israel, when we go on prayer walks on the old city walls, we have to enter the ramparts through a tall, turnstile gate. It's so narrow, and it rotates so that only one person can go through at a time. Two persons can't possibly go through together. And the gate of salvation that Jesus has talked about admits only one person at a time. In fact, the kingdom of God advances one person at a time, one soul at a time. And again, in Matthew 7, 21, Jesus said, Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter into the kingdom of heaven, but only he that does the will of my Father in heaven. He said, Many are going to say to him in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name, have we not cast out devils? And in thy name, did we not do many wonderful works? But then he says in Matthew 7, 23, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. So we learn that the dooms will speak empty words out of empty hearts. They had no real repentance in their life, no real obedience did you notice that three times in Matthew 7, 22, these people will claim that they did things in his name. So people are going to do a lot of name dropping. But the tragedy is that the Lord will say, you may have used my name, but I never knew you. They have no real relationship to God. So the sobering question remains, are you ready? for the sudden appearance of the Lord Jesus. There will be no time to get ready when he returns. We must already be ready. So it's important not to delay our surrender to the Lordship of Jesus so that when he comes, he'll be our savior and not our judge. I'm here to tell you that you can't save yourself and the church can't save you. Only the savior is worthy to save us. He paid the price with his own sinless blood and God approved him as Savior and Lord by raising him from the dead. Jesus knows the worst about you and me, but he's willing to forgive us. And here's the key to salvation, Romans 10:9. If you're willing to declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Amen. Are you willing to say with me, Jesus is Lord? I hope so. It's my earnest prayer. In the meantime, please explore our website, exploits.tv, and also our Jerusalem Channel app, as well as our Jerusalem Channel YouTube site to watch our library of videos 24-7. Our ministry is called Exploits, based upon Daniel 11.32, declaring that the people who know their God will be strong, not weak, and will accomplish exploits, meaning we'll do the works of the Lord, His God-ordained works, before His imminent return. I want you to feel free to share your thoughts with me on social media. And today we want to leave you with a word of assurance from Second Timothy 1, 7. It's such a vital verse proclaiming that God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind, a mind that's been delivered from chaos and anxiety. Hallelujah. Until next time, I'll always be contending for the faith and praying earnestly for the peace of Jerusalem. I'm Christine Dark. Shalom and Maranatha. Sail away by Christine Darek
1: Forty-four years ago, Christine and her husband Peter sold all their possessions to buy tickets on a round-the-world voyage, exploring the Caribbean onto South America, across the Atlantic to South Africa, then on to India, Sri Lanka, Singapore, Hong Kong, and Communist China, and finally Japan and Hawaii. The exploits of that three months at sea are recalled in Christine's new audiobook, Sail Away. Set sail with more than three and a half hours of exploring the world. Sail Away by Christine Darg is now available to download from the audible.com website. So enjoy a voyage of spiritual discovery as you listen to Christine read Sail Away, Discovering the Holy Spirit, on a world cruise.